Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. Award-winning poet, performer, playwright, and educator Maria James Chow has published several books of poetry and founded the Reclaim Artist Collective, which seeks to raise consciousness about social justice issues impacting marginalized communities through its arts-based anti-racist curriculum. Her latest poetry collection, Count Each Breath, examines her experiences as a Black woman in the American healthcare system. Maria joins me today to have the conversation we floated when she first came on the show in 2019 about the intersection of art and politics. Is it even possible to disconnect them? We tackle this question as well as the political implications of the focus on STEM education, what happens when we relegate the arts to an afterthought, and how driven creative folks find ways to earn money from their art or artistic skills. Here's my conversation with Maria James Chow. Maria, welcome back to Follow Your Curiosity. I have been looking forward to this. Me too. So last time you were here, which was a good while ago, we went into your creative history and all of that. So we won't rehash that here. If anybody wants to check that out, that's what back episodes are for. But back then, we talked about, just briefly, enough to say, let's come back and have a longer conversation later, about the idea of art and politics. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the last couple years have been moments that probably have made art even more political than before. Though this morning, I was also thinking, isn't art inherently political? Because all art makes a statement. And all politics is about making a statement, standing up for something. And what's what's the difference between making a statement and shining a light on something and actually being in the arena and standing up and saying, we need this policy, let's make it happen. And I'm not, I mean, obviously there are functional differences, but at the core, I'm not sure there's a huge gap in, in that space. What do you, What do you think? Well... I think, I think if you are not part of a privileged class, your very breath in the world is, is political. Um, I think that there are some that traditionally have had the, um, the privilege, for lack of a better term, to just write about sunshine, lollipops, rainbows. <laughs> but um, but everyone can't do that. I tried that, and the sunshine was um, the heat of the indignities against me. Like, I can't, I can't. I, <laughs> right. I tried to write about snow and birds, and no, it just doesn't work for me. So I always, and it's, it's, it's not, um, forced. It's not in like with, I sit down with the intention of writing a, a political poem it's just part of my everyday walking on the planet. Um, just part of my being that when, art comes out, it comes out political. I don't know. I do think some people can avoid, they they avoid that, but 
I don't know. For me, that doesn't work. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes sense because it's your lived experience and everybody's art comes out of their lived experience in one way or another. And I think that there's nothing wrong with sunshine and rainbows and flowers and unicorns. And I know that we're being extreme to a certain extent with those <laughs> examples, but but it, if that's the only thing that you have to talk about, I wonder how much you pay attention to what's going on in the world around you. And I, I, I wonder mean, how yeah. many people can really be that oblivious without actively working at being that oblivious. Right. Because even if today you're talking about nature, you're, you're talking about something that we are actively destroying. Right. So how, how can you talk about this beautiful animal without talking about how this animal will not be here in 50 years, you know, or this, this, I mean, (laughs) we could write about lantern flies. Do you have that? um, Oh yeah problem where you are oh yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) my gosh i'm surprised i haven't written about lantern flies yet but this too is a political statement the invasion (laughs) really truly invasion of this destructive um thing and the way like even little kids have been um prompted to murder them randomly oh yeah it's <laughs> my favorite time. game now in the summer is how many can i stomp on in the parking lot yeah which is really twisted now that i say that out loud. <laughs> it's like you know everybody says if you see one kill it so okay you know and obviously you can't kill hundreds of them in the parking lot that would that would just the, the cost to benefit ratio is not great there, but, um, but yeah, it's almost like a video game come to life, right? Yeah. How many lantern flies can you kill? That'll probably be the next that, one. Somebody is going to make that game. Somebody's somebody making it right now. <laughs> but there's such a great metaphor too, right? They come in, they invade, they get everywhere. They annoy everybody that was there in the first place. I mean, they're, they're kind of like, nature's little colonizing force Ooh, they sure are they are them and stink bugs Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> i had one of those land on me the other day oh. for the first time and i didn't know what it was a friend of mine knocked it off because i was like what is that buzzing those things buzz loud hey, yeah they do they and they knock into stuff and i think it's on purpose like it'll be like clink they're basically made of armor so what do they care yeah right but you know i i mean i'm thinking there's there's a potential you know political comment in there too because the stink bugs came over from asia Mm -hmm. and you know probably in a shipping container and now they've taken over the universe do we do we blame asia is it their fault? I don't think so. But if you wanted to, yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> it's the China bug if you wanted to go there. So though I'm not exactly sure what part of Asia they come from, it might not be China. But, but you know, I mean, it, it, it takes no effort to get from stink bugs are horrible and annoying and I wish they would go away to stink bugs came from Asia and therefore is all Asia's fault. <laughs> it takes none. 
Whether yeah, it's justified or not. And as we have seen in recent years, justified is not necessarily a requirement anymore. Oh, right. We can just say whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now we can say whatever we want. I mean, like, remember. No one seems to care. Remember from, well, I, I don't know. I, my degree is in communications. I don't know what you're this, but I remember from those communication classes how, um, 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 oh my God, Orson Welles, you know, got in so much trouble for, um, for you know, the aliens. War of the worlds. Yeah. And I think today, I don't think he'd get in trouble. Mm -mm. I think he'd get a spot on Fox News. <laughs> right. I think I think some people would have a problem with it and would say so. And then because some people were having a problem with it and saying so, somebody else would try to elevate it as, yay, free speech, whatever, which is not Maybe to say that Orson Welles violated free speech. Though <laughs> I do know somebody whose grandmother, so, so Grover's Mill is not far from where I live. Mm -hmm. And... And her grandmother was, I think it was her grandmother, probably, the dates are about right, um, was listening to War of the Worlds and was starting to, you know, like everybody else did, freak out about it when it was live on the air. Mm. And, and then there was a line about how, you know, there's this huge line of traffic at Grover's Mill. And she looked out her window and said, no, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of killed the magic of the moment for her, but that was also when she stopped panicking. So you know, oh, good, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's a Grover's Mill Coffee Company near here, and they're they have a big painting from War of the Worlds in their oh, coffee cool. shop. Yeah. Oh my god, I have to visit there. You do shops? Yes, yes. You do. You have to go. I, I know it's been too long. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I mean, it's. It is fascinating to me how everything that comes out of somebody's mouth now ends up being politicized. We politicized a virus and people died because of it. Yeah. Yeah. People are still dying because of it. We politicized a vaccine. I mean, good grief. You know, vaccines mm -hmm. have been, I mean, you think about, you know, people were talking about this. My parents were talking about how, you know, they lined up to get the sugar cube when the polio vaccine came out. And there was no question whatsoever you were going to get it because polio was so horrible. Yeah. Every single parent in the country was like, me first, let me get in line. I want my kid to have this thing. And now we're running around talking about this like it's got alien tech in it and there are people who think that it does and that just kind of boggles my mind i mean i've watched a lot of science fiction in my life but i'm still not sure how they think that could possibly work but but yeah i mean we turn everything into politics so it doesn't really surprise me that therefore and i would guess even 20 30 years ago it was true that art is to a degree inherently political depending on how far you want to take it but still political uh -huh. but now every single word that comes out of your mouth is political yeah i and it's funny um some sometimes like you said with the alien tech sometimes it's nonsensical mm -hmm. like like there's no way that can be true but you're you still got like 50 people outside holding a vigil because you said like Elvis lives in here or something like they just 
make up the craziest stuff. And I was actually just um, looking for something I can tell your listeners about. Um, here in Pennsylvania, some, I'm thinking probably QAnon people mm-hmm. were putting, were putting um, notes into food packages. So that is very scary. So I'm thinking like that they must be in the, you know, must work in the factory or in the grocery stores, but, but it's like Cracker Jacks. Like, wow. I had a student that opened um, a box of cookies and there was this note inside and I had taken a picture of it, but I'm not finding it at the moment. To, I mean, I, I I did it. I read it out loud like a soliloquy, just completely making fun of the thing. But basically, it says that there are signs everywhere and there's aliens and that there's dragon headed people that are taking over and they're they're from the KKK and and they, Obama was in on it and <laughs> Trump will save the day and it was the most ridiculous thing I ever read and we were laughing hysterically but at the same time you're scared because you're like they're in my food like what right what are, what and these people doing? really believe this stuff yes you know like the case and with the pizza parlor it. in DC that didn't even have a basement, but bad things were going on in the basement. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, that just sounds be- like a fever dream, you know, like uh-huh. somebody, somebody really, you know. And wasn't there some, there was someone that was, I think they were caught, if I remember the news story correctly, but they were planning on assassinating people because of things happening in that basement. Yeah. Yeah, the guy went there and was like, where, you know, where is it? Went there with a gun. And the owners are like, what are you even talking about? And, (laughs) you know, called the police on him and everything. They're like, there's not even, there's no place for this to happen. Yeah. And I think that's the only way that the scales fall off anybody's eyes at this point. But even then, I think some of them could come up with a reason why there doesn't need to be a basement. You know, like the the hold, the conspiracy oh, yeah. theory hold is so strong. And I've heard QAnon described as a religion. And I think that there is, you know, reasonable that's justification cool. for calling it that, you know, that it has kind of replaced religion and you're a true believer yeah. No matter how nonsensical it is. I mean, you know, like I think about the vaccine stuff and I'm just like, seriously, I, I remember Fantastic Voyage. Yes, you shrink people down in a little ship and inject them into somebody's body to go fix the thing, right? <laughs> but it's fiction. Exactly. You know, there's there's a line there. There may be a statement being made about, wouldn't it be great if we could do this to cure people? or you know, maybe someday we'll go too far. I mean, come on, I'm a Doctor Who fan. We've got the Cybermen, which are the classic example of 60s paranoia about going too far with medical implants that may not be that paranoid. I don't know. Are we crazy enough to just start replacing everything? Possibly. But (laughs) it's, you know, it's a cautionary tale, if nothing else. But it's fiction. You want to think about, wow, what would the world be like if that happened? And how do we want to proceed with that? That's kind of what it's there for, is to provoke that discussion. 
but nobody <laughs> is thinking that you're going to take it seriously. Yeah. Oh, I found the crazy note from them. Oh, you did? Yes. Um, I'm not going to read this whole thing. I don't want to like convert anyone who's right. Like, right. But just a representative sample. Yes. It's, it's basically, it it's, has these huge parts that say lies, lies. And then it has tiny little print <laughs> and lots of abbreviations where it's almost like you have to decipher it. Um, it. Yeah. Yeah. It is really crazy. But there's basically saying that um, th there are secret societies and that's why there's mass shootings and um, JFK and Lincoln warned us about them. And, <laughs> um, and they are, and it's basically saying that the Vatican, the Jesuits, you know, bad Catholics are um, the Illuminati, which also, also somebody read, <laughs> somebody read some Dan Brown and took it. <laughs> I was just thinking of Dan Brown. <laughs> um, oh yeah, the Vatican's got its own mafia. Um, let's see. There's secret messages in China, in the Chinese and Islamic symbols of the Crescent. And um, yeah. There's all kinds of secret messages. We see KKK capitalized. Oh, and um, Exxon, Exxon's uh, sign has secret messages in it. Um, <laughs> and there are dragon kings who are an ancient race of people with long skulls from Easter Island. And <laughs> their agenda is socialism. Dun, dun, dun. The and dragon people are in okay. It's just... Somebody oh. needs to stop getting high while they're watching Game of Thrones. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's wild. It's wild that people don't want to think critically. Oh God, what's critical thinking? I mean, come on. What is that? Yeah, and, and, and they're mad at the institutions of higher learning. Um, that and, would teach them to think critically. Maybe that's yep. why they're mad at them. That's exactly what they need, and that's what they don't want. And maybe there's a reason that, uh, I'll just say it, maybe there's a reason that certain politicians want to support for-profit schools, mm. because if we can just give them something, a piece of paper from a degree mill, then maybe they will vote for us because they didn't learn to assess what they're reading for bias, and they didn't learn to um, think critically about what people are saying. They didn't learn about rhetoric. So now we can just talk about, you know, the star, the Saturn rings where mm. the dragon Kings came from and the, <laughs> and oh, and the Purina sign that has some type of secret messages in it. And, uh, you know, Oprah, it, is aligned with Putin. That's what it says. So <laughs> I can't even keep track of all of this, but I'll tell you what I'm thinking, which is, and, and this has become political too, right? Education and the focus on STEM. I have nothing against science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, mm -hmm. nothing whatsoever. But if we lose the arts and if we lose actually teaching thinking skills, 
which right like if you're going to be a good scientist or a good engineer or a good mathematician you can't do those things without some good thinking skills because you have to be able to solve problems you have to be able to troubleshoot all of that stuff requires some solid critical thinking but if we're like cutting it's it's like cutting off half your brain right and i know that the analogy is old and possibly not strictly scientifically accurate anymore but if you're only going with your left brain you lose everything you get from your right brain that's right you need you need both halves you need the intuitive imaginative side because what are you going to design as an engineer if you can't dream something up thank you it's creative science is creative absolutely inventions you need creativity to, to invent something. Um, also, where do they think all this came from? And also, we're not just whistling Dixie, although we could, because music is mathematic. Yes, it is. <laughs> and so if you, um, so kids that learn music do better in math. Yep. Um, kids, I, I can't tell you how many choral singers I know who are engineers. Oh yeah, yeah. Tons of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is important to to be able to learn the arts. To learn, um, you if you're doing architecture, you you need art. <laughs> you need to know shape, balance, distance. You need to know like spatial. You know, have spatial awareness. You need that stuff, and so. Um, when schools are cutting programs, cutting the arts first is like cutting education. Like mm -hmm. they need that. They need that. So that's not a good place to cut programs. No. And architecture is such a great example of, of all of it coming together in one place. Yes. You have to have yes. design, but you also have to understand how a building works. Right. And that is pure science. You know, Gaming. which materials work here and yes. what you have to do to to hold up a wall and all of that. And gaming is a multi-million dollar industry, probably billion dollar industry. And um, to build a game, yes, you need computer science. Yes, you need programming and coding, but you also need 3D modeling. You need animation. You need to know color theory. You need to be able to write a story. I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> if your game doesn't have a story, nobody cares. Exactly. Characters. It's, they need characters, they need plot development, they need all of that. So we have to work together and yeah. um, our, our society has to stop treating artists like we're, I don't know, they treat it like it's an illness. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and, and I, I was thinking earlier, you know, with, with the STEM stuff, they need creativity, but they won't call it creativity. They call it innovation. Right, right. Right. Because innovation sounds more professional and business like and whatever. And I'm like, what the heck is wrong with creativity? I mean, if you if you think best when you're trying to design something, you know, by finger painting, who cares? <laughs> who That's cares? True. I mean, who is gonna judge your finger painting? They don't care what how you got there. They care what you produced. You care how you got there because you know what works for you. But what works for you is the only thing that matters. That's right. And you know what else? 
studies show that by writing by hand or coloring can bring down your blood pressure. Um, it, it has the same benefits as meditation and yoga. Mm-hmm. So like the people that are building these STEM projects, whatever their industry they're working in, they need art to um, even just survive and thrive, you know? So and people don't know that. Everybody's not going to feel safe in a, safe and comfortable in a yoga studio, but you could write in your journal, um, you know, and that's art mm-hmm. in writing about your day. So I yeah. think, yeah, I, I loved being in France where people were, where art was so much a part of the culture that's so important and it would even be subsidized like um this level of patronage for the arts it's it's important I, I wish we could establish something like that instead of so many artists banging their heads against the wall in corporate um in these corporations or other places with the golden handcuffs that they're attached to it's really hard. It's really hard to be surrounded by these neurotypical left brainers that <laughs> think they're God's gift to the world. It's Don't like, forget extroverts because most of them are. We'll just offend everybody in one comment. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm I'm not a born extrovert. I think I've become an extrovert, but I used to be shy and quiet and um I don't know. I, I learned to be, I'm still, I'm still a little shy. People just don't know. But when I perform, I'm, I'm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you know, introversion and shyness are not the same thing. It's where you get your energy from. No, that's yeah. You know, so, so I, a lot of people will insist to me that I am not an introvert and I'm like, oh yeah, I am. Like, yeah, I can be in a room and I can have, you know, really active, vivacious conversations with a bunch of people, but it's not going to be with more than maybe three or four at a time. And I'll be exhausted when I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'll enjoy it while it lasts, but then it'll be like, okay, it's time for me to go home and just spend some time with some music or a book or something that does not involve other people for a good long while. And And they don't understand that you know, having, having an active personality among other people does not mean that you're not introverted. It just means that you've got a limited budget for that. (laughs) And then you have to go and, and recharge. Yeah. But yeah, (laughs) I had to teach my son how to be polite in those situations because he would just um, growl at people and run away. (laughs) <laughs> and then like lock his door <laughs> there were moments when i could totally get behind that approach. <laughs> but yeah i i think you know when, when you were talking a minute ago i was thinking about how like you would nobody i, I cannot think of anybody anyway i'm sure there's somebody out there who would but the image of taking crayons away from a three-year-old, right? No one would take crayons away from a three-year-old. No. Or a 10-year-old, you know? 
it's it's once you start to become a teenager and you have to grow up that crayons become for kids. Yeah, isn't that? You know, and it's like the whole act of making art becomes for kids or something that, you know, most serious people don't do because, oh, you have to make a living and you have to do this and you have to do that. And it's like, if it's good for kids, why isn't it good for adults? You know, just like you were saying with the coloring and and that kind of, you know, like that's been such a huge thing for a couple of years. I think for a reason, because it's like adults have been given permission to go play like they did when they were kids. And obviously we're probably going to stay in the lines and I am not sure if that's a good thing or not. But, <laughs> you know, it's like the right act problem. of making art itself yeah. is to ex- an extent, you know, the subject of societal approval or disapproval and that is also something that's got a political weight behind it especially because it does influence things like curriculum and careers and stuff like that and and I think we don't we don't see how integrated art is into our existence because we've been told that it's optional and that we don't actually need it that it's a luxury you know and, and it's odd to me it's a luxury but we don't we don't you know it's not important to do it it's not important yeah. to do it, but you pay big bucks for somebody else to come in and, and paint you a mural, right? Right, Like, right. isn't that a little unbalanced and strange? Yeah, it's very strange. Um, it's a messed up part of the mass culture and um, basically capitalism, where I, I really question the values of a capitalist society that's so focused on making money that um, something that makes a child feel alive is silenced. Mm -hmm. So that child walks through the world feeling dead, right? right? Feeling dead inside. And that is so painful. And um, it's very sad. Um, I worked for an art school and you would often have parents that didn't really want their kid in there, but the kid like, and they're in high school, the kid, you know, cried and screamed or batted their eyelashes or did whatever (laughs) they had to do to get in. And I often had to tell parents, no, this isn't just playtime. They, they can make a career of this. There are writers making 50, 60, $70,000 a year just on publishing. I've, I've run into people publishing like 30 books. I mean, like, um, it is a career. Um, it depends what you want to do. Do you want to be a freelancer? Do you want to be a journalist? Do you want to, you know, be a poet like myself, but there are paths to, um, money. If you have some marketing knowledge and an entrepreneurial spirit and why do we have to stay stuck to some corporation making some man rich lining his pockets and feeling dead inside i i don't think you have to do that i really don't think you have to do that i agree with you and and i had a bit of this conversation recently and i'm blanking on who I had it with. (laughs) Um, I think it was John Rodell, but I could be wrong. But because I I saw this conversation on TikTok with somebody who 
you know, is a, a counselor who said, look, you know, don't do this to your kid. Don't tell your kid that they can't make a living at their art. If they really are dedicated to their art, they will figure out how to do it. And it may not look like what you think that it would look like, mm -hmm. right? If you are the parent and you are not an artist and you don't understand where your kid's artistic bent is coming from, or maybe you are an artist and you weren't able to figure it out and you didn't have the drive or you succumbed right. to the messages saying you can't do this and you're imagining your child starving in an attic apartment somewhere in the dead of winter, <clears throat> have a little faith in your kid because your kid's vision is going to be really different than your vision. Your kid may already see an avenue to make it work, or they may just, what a concept, have enough faith in themselves that they'll figure it out. Isn't that what anybody wants for their kid? For them to have enough belief and faith in their own abilities to be able to figure something out? Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, I, I mean, and, and I know, like, I, I talked to Annie Ruggles about this recently, and, you know, she was a, a theater major. And she knows people who are out using that theater major to do all sorts of things that you wouldn't necessarily associate with a theater major. But because they have the skills that you learn as a theater major, they are able to, you know, coach people to be better speakers or be great salespeople or all yeah. sorts of other things. And, you know, who, most people don't think of sales and theater in the same sentence, but that's not necessarily a mutually exclusive thing that may not be where every theater major lands but if if you find that that's your best use of those skills go for it and that certainly does not mean that your theater degree was a waste yeah absolutely. and people were just coming down on this guy on tiktok left right and center and saying that this was irresponsible parenting and it's my job to keep my kids from getting their hopes up unrealistically and stuff and i was just like oh man <laughs> Oh, that's a shame. It's, it's, it's really, I don't know, maybe if you, it's the educational system, like they, they haven't seen the greats or they think all the greats are dead. Like there are great living contemporary artists mm -hmm. as well, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, there, and there are avenues like, I um, am a poet and playwright, and I started Reclaim Artist Collective, which is um, soon to be a nonprofit organization. It's a bit of paperwork, but <laughs> but uh, we, I have a board, um, and I'm about to have an intern and all kinds of things. Um, it's and we're finding a pathway by having that organization, we can get grants. We just awarded um, through, we partnered with the Harrisburg uh, chapter of the Lynx Incorporated and um, got a grant for $4,500. That's going to go towards putting on my next play. So yes, I'm a, a writer, but I'm also a business owner. And and finding ways to get what I need to let get my art out there. So, and we're also doing um, workshops. We're doing 
uh, writing workshops. We're doing anti-racism workshops. We're using the poetry that I write in along with like drama and improv and music to show um, audiences that, um, you know, to, to make them think critically about uh, racism, implicit bias, you know, those ish- issues uh, that we're dealing with. So I'm doing that for a major corporation uh, next year. So there are things that we can do with our art. And with the, the book, like, um, I'm going to be, whoop, it's count each breath. Oh, yeah, we're not on screen. That's okay. But, my book is um, Count Each Breath, and I just had the epiphany. I want to make a guided journal to go with it um, because I think that women, people that are suffering from chronic illness need to ask certain questions. They need to remember those questions. They need to um, uh take note of how they're feeling on different days and um, the things that they're, they're going through um, and take that with them to the doctors and let the doctors know that they're on top of things um, and that, and that they deserve to have respect and have their questions answered and things like that. So it, when you're creative, the ideas just keep flowing. I can't imagine being in a boardroom where there were no creatives in there. <laughs> They're just left-brainers. Right. Well, and you know, I really believe that everybody is creative, but some people have been taught to believe that they're not. So is a good chance that some of those left-brainers in the boardroom are actually stunted creative folks who don't mm-hmm. know how to get in touch with it. And then how does that manifest itself against people who have, oh, the possibilities are endless. Wow. Closet artists. Right, right. <laughs> I, I mean, and, out day. <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, I've met people who will insist to me that they don't have a creative bone in their body, and I'm like, yeah, and yet you solve problems for people all day, every day. So right. explain to me how that works again, because um, it doesn't. Exactly. You're totally creative. You will figure out the way to fix the thing. Yeah. You know, which is why I've made a point of talking to people who are accountants and mathematicians and, you know, things that people don't typically think of as creative on this podcast because it's everywhere and we just need to learn to see it because we've been taught not to. Right, right. I mean, you know, you're you're talking about the medical system. Show me a doctor that has never had to be creative to help a patient. Yeah, seriously. I love watching uh, uh, medical shows. And I think about that sometimes how like um, something goes wrong and they they have to problem solve and um, they have to be creative. Like, okay, so we were taught to do it this way, but we might have to do this, this, and this. Gosh, I even look at bariatrics surgery i'm like (laughs) who thought that up like (laughs) if the thing was smaller maybe there'd be less food in it and this could work start sewing up (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's all ideas coming together in unexpected ways. That's right. That's right. That's what it is. Yeah. And um, man, when, when I worked at the art school, <laughs> it was so funny because um, you had a lot of kids on the autism spectrum that were so brilliantly creative. And um, it's so funny because people used to say that they that that group couldn't be creative but my god the things that they would make um the the artwork the things they drew the things that the poems that they wrote just beautiful and um we had some wonderfully creative teachers and everything administration not so much <laughs> yeah got issues with them still but um but yeah, it was it was a beautiful group of students and that and it was awesome to be able to let them just be them. But mm -hmm. when I first got there, one of the best things was I look out into the hallway and there is a very large black boy twinkle toeing <laughs> and spinning down the hall. And I was like, he feels safe to do that. This right? is awesome. This yeah. place is awesome. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to do a pirouette down the hall. And yeah, that's cool. <laughs> you know, that reminds me, you know, when I was teaching and I taught ESL kids and I always wanted to do creative writing with my ESL kids. And I would literally have other people in the school say to me, well, what are you thinking? ESL kids can't do creative writing. Mm. Which for me, it was just like, you have thrown down the gauntlet, my friend, and I am going to prove to you how much ESL kids can do creative writing, because why on earth would you even say that? Right. I mean, right. their language skills may not be perfect, but that doesn't mean that they can't write a story or a poem. What? What? Yeah. And look at writers like um, Kamal Brathwaite, who he writes in Patois, and it's beautiful. Am I saying that right? But anyway, it's beautiful. and. Um, there are others that, you know, the it, they might write in Spanglish, like uh, Martina Espada sometimes and Elizabeth Acevedo, that the mix of the languages um, is beautiful. And you don't have to, you don't always have to know every word to see the beauty of the poem there. Mm -hmm. you no. Know? You might not have to know every word. Well, and it's also, I mean, why, why as an ESL teacher, would I not want to give my students the opportunity to play with the language that they're learning? Yes. And, and you know, there are great moments in there. There are moments that are funny because it's like, yeah, that doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> you know? Of course, yes. Or, or moments that are, are great teaching moments. And one that comes to mind that was both, I had this this kid from Taiwan who wrote just the most fabulous sort of like manga anime fantasy short story. I mean, it was Ooh. it blew me away. Wow. But there was a moment in there where these two characters have a fight. And he wrote that one of them fell down and lost his mind. Wait. <laughs> and what he meant was, was knocked unconscious. Oh. But he didn't know that term. And I think probably translating roughly equivalently, that, you yes. know, that would have been what he would have said. And I looked at it and I thought, 
I kind of love this just the way it is. I know it's, you know, I know what he means. It's not how he meant to say it, but there's something really great in the idea that when you're knocked out, you've lost your mind, right? I mean, <laughs> you have. It's just that it doesn't play nicely with the idiom of losing your mind in English. He might be a great surrealist poet. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure what he's up to now. He's definitely not a kid anymore. But, you know, and I explained it to him and I said, I really love this. And a big part of me doesn't want you to change it. But as your teacher, I need you to understand that in English, this is what losing your mind means. <laughs> and so this is how people are going to read it. So you probably need to change it. But I want you to know that I love the poetry of how you wrote it anyway. You know, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, you know, come on. Why? Mm. Tell me this kid can't can't do creative writing. It's like telling me the kid can't breathe. He can't breathe because he's an ESL student? Of course he can. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, this is crazy. And I had kids write beautiful things, wonderful things. Yeah. And then we published all of them in the literary magazine because I was the advisor and we didn't typically get a lot of submissions from kids who weren't in the ESL program. Fantastic. So it was like, really? You want to see how much they can't do creative writing? Here's a copy of this year's literary magazine. Enjoy. Yeah. Wonderful. That's yeah. great. That's great. You know, but we go, we decide that somebody can't do X because they're Y. I mean, what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. My little boy used to be totally into um, coding and robots and things like that. And then after COVID, COVID had him really kind of agoraphobic and mm -hmm. he is on the autism spectrum and it really, um, he was not doing well. And so then uh, I got him into acting camp, which of course, I didn't know how this was going to go. <laughs> I was teaching at the acting camp. So I was like, well, if he has a meltdown, at least they can just come get me and we'll leave in shame. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, he fell in love with it. And then he started speaking publicly, singing publicly um, and band together with the neighborhood children and wrote a TV script and wrote a play. And they performed it in someone's yard. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a different kid now. Right? <laughs> I mean, like, there's a reason why they call it Dr. Theater, right? Oh, you yeah. know, your kid stutters, send them off to Dr. Theater. It's really therapeutic. And after the, but unfortunately, when I worked at the arts high school, um, COVID hit like 10 days later after I started. And so then everybody went to their hubbles and they became faces on on screens and some of them checked out mentally mm -hmm. like absolutely um there were even some that were in institutions and they 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 were gone mentally so now the the teaching of poetry became therapy and mm. because they needed it they needed to get rid of some of the we all needed it. That's what yes. I wrote poetry through the pandemic too. So um, um, the short stories, you know, the 
the things that we wrote, the things we created were therapy for all of us. And I, I write with my students um, and it w- it's important. It was really important. So I hope it helps. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I want to make sure that we have time to talk about the book. Okay. Well, count each breath. It's, um, it is a labor of love through 2020. I, I stopped writing it, not, you know, wasn't edited yet, but it was New Year's Eve 2020 when I was like, the last poem is in. I know the order they're going in. This is it. I've got a manuscript. Um, and it really, it has three sections. It deals with being a woman of color with chronic illness and having to deal with those healthcare disparities. And then it goes into COVID and how life changed um, and what I was going through at that time and what the neighborhoods were like and things like that. And then goes into the uprising and Black Lives Matter and um, how it felt to be someone who's very vulnerable to COVID, but still wanted to be out there supporting, supporting the uprising, things like that. So that, that's what my poems are pretty much about. They coming from personal experiences or things I've seen and witnessed and um, things like that. Just, and although I do have a spoken word style, somewhat i i am literary as well so they're very vivid um a lot of imagery very vivid poems that i think a regular person could get a lot out of even if they didn't have an mfa <laughs> like ours <laughs> that's the idea right you have the right. mfa so that everybody is finds your stuff accessible we hope <laughs> we hope yeah. Accessible, that dirty word from <laughs> some of the old heads still don't like uh, it. Yeah. But yeah. I, I do think it's accessible and I think it's that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And and um it brought me some healing to to write. And I y- use some different forms that I haven't used in um in the past, like haiku. Um there's maybe like four haikus in there. Um, I lost people during that time in COVID and have some dedications in there. Um, yeah, but, oh, can I, can I read the words of, uh, my blurb here? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Vernita Hill, the author of Where William Walked, poems about Philadelphia and its people of color. Um. Bernita said, in this coronacation created collection, Maria James Chow delivers personal poetic reflections on chronic illness and mortality, race relations, and family history. The speaker's experiences form a colored chronicle of disparities, as fluidly surreal as Dali's melting clocks, in which she folds up her some days in response to an immune system that unpeels her like fresh fruit. That's a quote from the book. There's yet an image. <laughs> conjures, <laughs> yet conjures music from, 
even from suffering, her pain pricked body is a voodoo doll. And she goes goes Ooh. on from there. <laughs> wow, that's an image too. Yeah, I have a poem called Voodoo Doll that it's basically describing anxiety. Why don't you read it to us? Okay, I will. Let's see. Flipping through. Almost there. Here it is. <laughs> okay. Voodoo doll. My teeth free float in my mouth. Held only by a thread of flesh, they avoid the electric walls of my gums. They are bells tolling. If I could sleep, they would grind. My eyelids are glued open. My throat is sewn shut. A witch sticks pins in my joints, drills her thumbs into my hips, pounds my head till my stomach churns. They call this morning. I wake up in it. Every day I remind myself to breathe, not the quick, shallow breaths I feel, but slow, steady, deep. I tell myself I still want to. Ooh. I mean, you came very close to dying at one point. I did. When I I was I had some severe pain, abdominal pain, and I tried to ignore it for a few days because my mother-in-law actually passed away that same week. And I didn't want to, I do this. I think about, <laughs> I didn't want my husband to have to worry about me too, but it was getting worse. And so I asked him to take me to the emergency room. It was the first day that ER decided to get rid of almost all the beds and have chairs. So I'm sitting in a chair with a curtain between me and another woman with abdominal pain sitting in a chair. I got the TV, though. <laughs> I'm telling them I'm in severe pain and... They didn't, oh my God, I was there so long before they offered me anything for that. And um, they did run the tests, but I, I had told them who my doctor was, but it was 4th of July weekend, right? Jeez. Oh, yeah, that's not a good time to get sick. Thanksgiving or 4th of July, Christmas, don't get sick. Um, <laughs> and, and so couldn't couldn't find the doctor. They're taking tests. They actually saw what was wrong. A 13 centimeter um, uh, cyst on my ovary. I told them six months ago when I was in the ER, that thing was only four centimeters. And now it's 13. (laughs) And yet... Um, they, they asked me to stay overnight and then let, told me to go home. I said, are you sure? Like, aren't, don't they want to take this out? Well, you don't seem that bad. That's a direct quote. So I'm still in pain, but you've given me some medicine now. And now you're telling me I don't seem that bad. So they said, just you have a appointment with the doctor on Wednesday. And I believe this was Sunday. 
yeah, it was Sunday. And they're like, you have an appointment with the doctor on Wednesday. So just um, go home and don't take more than 150 steps. Okay. So now my, my son, Muhammad, <laughs> who was, um, he was a little guy. Oh my God. He was so cute. But he, he said, um, okay, mom, you can't take more than 150 steps. And he's walking all around the house. Right. And he, then he comes to my bedroom and says, mom, the only thing you can do until Wednesday is walk to the bathroom and back once or walk to the kitchen and back uh, once. You can't go to the car. It's too far away. <laughs> I'm like, Because he's going around the house counting the steps. So anyway, to make long story short, on Tuesday, it ruptured. And I was, I was home. I felt it go boom. And there is a, a poem, um, True Patriot, to that moment. Um, because, you know, I could, I was stuck at home and this thing went pop, like, um, like a gunshot to the gut. And, um, I called the, I immediately got sick, immediately started, you know, my body started like trying to get rid of everything. Mm -hmm. And, um, I called them and they're like, well, you could come in a little earlier tomorrow. Like, it still wasn't an emergency to them. By the time I got there, um, by the time I got there on Wednesday, it's like, let's just go to the hospital. <laughs> the the doctor's back. We go to the hospital. Um, when I was on the table, the, the surgery um, took two hours. I was told there was three liters of blood. In my abdomen, I was getting septic um, and I ended up in the ICU and it just was horrible. And then after that, my whole digestive system was paralyzed. So then I couldn't digest any food. And oh, yeah. And a nurse came right after the surgery and was and gave me a turkey sandwich. And. (laughs) Did she not get the memo? She she did not get the memo. I did not digest that turkey sandwich until about seven days later. And that's the poem, Ilias. (laughs) Yeah. So it was, it, it was terrible. It was a terrible experience. And my poor husband lost his mother-in-law days before and then had to deal with um, almost losing me as well in the same time frame. So it was a crazy time. Yeah. Oi. And it just goes to that. I, I found research that shows that um, Black women, mm-hmm. um, their pain, Black people, their pain is often dismissed, not believed. Um, they They are often like ignored like the things that they're reporting isn't believed um they're considered thick-skinned so you know this isn't gonna get to you you're tough you know right 
all these things. In fact, um, one comedian said, thank you, racism, because of you, we're not impacted by the opioid crisis (laughs) because we can't get pain medicine. Yeah, I mean, I know that that women's pain in general is discounted. Yes. But then yes. you've got that whole extra layer on top of it. And, you know, a friend of mine broke her ankle recently and told me that when she left the hospital, they gave her 15 Vicodin. And I thought, really? Yeah. How many would you have given me? Yeah. And how many would you have given to my brother? Mm-hmm. Because I'll bet you that it would have been three mm-hmm. different amounts. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So you had plenty of source material for, for this book. I sure did. I sure did. It's amazing. And I really think about um, for many years, doctors have been trying to guess um, what's wrong with me. Like overall, um, many point to autoimmune diseases, but the, the tests, always come back either negative or a weak positive. So they're like, well, that's not enough to treat. We don't know, but it's probably this one doctor. And this is a quote from in the book too. He said, "Eh, those things come back negative for seven years before they're positive. (laughs) I'm just like, that's reassuring. Thank you. That doesn't sound like the voice of expertise to me. <laughs> Call me crazy, but uh, I think you, I would be like, you're nuts and I'm finding another doctor. <laughs> but on average, women are not diagnosed for four and a half years after initially having symptoms of lupus or rheumatoid or Sjogren's or any of those autoimmune diseases. It takes four and a half years to get an actual diagnosis and some treatment. So it's wacky. Yeah. You have to fight for it. Yeah. So I think count each breath is, is really great for women, not just African-American women, but um, people have shown me that they really can relate. Um, There was a woman that showed up my church last week and said, um, when you were writing those poems, you were writing about me and you didn't even know it. <laughs> I have a feeling a lot of people would say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. We're suffering too much. And I think the, um, I think there's a lot more diversity in the medical field now, but still I have this wonderful pulmonologist who I have a dedication to in the book. Um, and I noticed that when male doctors would come into the room, they treated her like a cute little thing instead of like a highly educated, Ivy League educated, brilliant, uh, grown woman that she is. Uh, And it was really obvious. So. That's so frustrating too. Yeah. Well, I I also wanted to talk about your experience publishing this book because I know that you had some issues along the way. Yes. People that follow me on TikTok may see me um, expressing expressing my frustration with uh, KDP, and that is the Amazon company, like Kindle 
that mm-hmm. publishes um, what's on your Kindle. Um, I don't know who's running things over there, but they are really kind of attacking small publishers. Um, my book was published by Wilding Publishing, a, a small um, kind of new uh, publishing company. And um, <laughs> she put a file up as a placeholder while she um, got, because because the book was not out yet. Well, she got some other things together for the book. And um, suddenly she got a message from Amazon that said that Count Each Breath was banned for content violations. Now, I just told you what the content is. What could right. be the violation? Like, there's not even any curse words in it that I. Well, and that was my thought when I first saw your TikTok saying it was banned. I was like, what on earth could possibly be bannable in her book? Exactly, exactly. It was ridiculous. The only thing, like, it talks about racism. So it's like, are these the same people attacking the school boards around the country, or what? So she, she, the publisher kept trying to get more information, like, um, why, what's going on? And they would not, they, and they said, you can appeal it this way, but they, they would not even say why it's just, we don't like the content. So it's banned. So she, she went around them, went to, um, Ingram spark. They call it going wide. Mm -hmm. Um, Went to Ingram Spark and um, this major distributor, and Ingram um, posted my book, and now you can get it on Amazon. But what we found out, thanks to you, Nancy, just yesterday, <laughs> just yesterday, <laughs> is that um, KDP po- instead of posting the final version of the book, they posted that old placeholder. So what people got that bought the ebook was gobbledygook <laughs> and um, probably typos and like old stuff, like letters on top of each other, ridiculousness. So, so now my publisher's fighting with them again to get rid of that and give people the actual what we paid final for. Copy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which is a readable book Come exactly on. the printed copies came out beautifully but having issues but um she has been told uh that the the correct ebook will be placed there and they'll get rid of the ugly thing oh well, that's good <laughs> um so i'll let it, you know if i get a message saying there's a new version of your book <laughs> yeah Would you like to download please, it please. yes yes because i'd like to read it <laughs> <laughs> not decipher it like that q anon note right <laughs> I mean, has, has she heard from other people who've run into this issue with amazon um there were some others uh there were some complaints and people are posting like uh youtube videos about it so you might be able to find some of that um, that they're having trouble with KDP. Just like Google that and you'll see about the around the same time period. Like they just, that's why I said they're attacking small presses um, the, and indie publishers and, and small publishers. 
Yeah. yeah. Amazon is such a double-edged sword, you know, like my book I published through Amazon. I also put it up at Barnes and Noble. I don't think anybody's bought a copy off of Barnes and Noble in years. It's not exactly the world's biggest seller, but you know, every, every so often I'll get something from Amazon saying, Oh, here's your quarterly statement, you know, and maybe I can go buy myself a pizza, but, um, <laughs> It's a great book, though. Yeah. Everyone should read The Silver Oh, Child. thank you. I love it. But, you know, it's it's so... I didn't have any trouble, but I published mine in 2015. So that's a very, you know, a long time ago, comparatively speaking. But just the other day, I got a thing from them about putting this podcast on Amazon. Ooh. And I'll have to go and read through the stuff because I got something from them a while back and there's a reason why this podcast is not on Amazon. And it's because when I read through the terms of service, it said that I'm not allowed to say anything bad about Amazon in my podcast. And I'm like, this is a podcast where I talk to a lot of authors and writers and Amazon is not great for authors and writers. You know, I mean, yeah, the ability to, to publish your own book and get it out there easily is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. Uh -huh. But you're not going to make a whole lot of money if you do Kindle Unlimited, at least as of the last time that I read anything about it, which it has been a while. So I hope this has changed, but I'm not holding my breath. You really don't make much money. And so, you know, it's it's it is such a double edged sword. You can if you have the time and the energy to put into publicizing your book. You can do well with it. You can get it out there to a wider audience. But at the same time, you know, not everybody manages to do that. And and then, like, I have a Kindle. I love my Kindle. As a device, I love my Kindle. I love reading books on my Kindle. Like, the only thing I don't love about it is that I forget that I have books because I can't see them staring at me saying, are you going to read me one day? <laughs> um, so there are things on there that I'm like, oh, wow, I forgot I bought that like 10 years ago. But you're kind of stuck with Amazon. Yeah. So like everything has to come through Amazon. It's less true in the last few months since they finally decided to be EPUB compatible. So now I could, in theory, go to Barnes & Noble to buy a book and just manually put it on my Kindle. It's not as easy. It's probably less complicated than burning a CD used to be. So it's not like it's super difficult, but we've been trained now to just automatically have it show up there. So is anybody going to do that? Mm. I haven't yet. I hadn't even thought about it until this morning, you know? <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's great, but there are the parts of it that aren't great. And yeah, you know, like yeah. where's, where's the sweet spot? Because the extremes are kind of extreme. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's tough. And it's a monopoly. So. Oh yeah. Or nearly so. Yeah. You know, functionally close enough, if not in absolute point of fact. Right. But that's why I'm like, gee, Amazon, um, I want to be able to talk to people about the realities of publishing on Amazon. And if you're not going to like that, then there's no point me putting my podcast on your service. That's right. And you guys are not a huge behemoth of podcasting right now. So there's no point even worrying about it. And I doubt that that's changed. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I hope everyone reads their terms of service. Right? Because we don't so <laughs> yeah. often. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, because your instinct is, oh, hey, you have another place for me to put my podcast out. Sign me up. And I'm like, then I saw that part and I was like, nope. Nope. Ugh. Not worth it. It is not. It is not. 
I feel like I was going to tell you something else about that, but it went away. (laughs) (laughs) You'll remember. It'll come back. It'll come back. Right. (laughs) That's okay. So, I mean, we've been going for a good while here and I don't want to keep you over long, but I appreciate this conversation. I love how it keeps coming back to, you know, that original question of art and politics, right? Because whether or not Amazon will publish your book is kind of a political decision. Right. And there's also like, should they publish that QAnon note? (laughs) I would tend to think that that's probably not in the interest of the public good, but free speech is a thing. So (laughs) yeah. Why are they? And I'm sure that they're publishing self-published QAnon books, but if they don't want to publish yours, you know, yeah, I'm that really makes me think, I mean, it it deals with racism. It deals with systematic racism. Um, it supports Black Lives Matter. So if you decide that, in fact, ooh, she's, oh, I wish I had this just to show you because my um, publisher said that they did send like this, this text that said, um, it doesn't meet our community standards or something like that. And then part of what the community standards was um, anything supporting terrorism. I was like, if they are calling BLM terrorists again, I'm going to be pissed. Um, Right. Is that what they're saying? Cause Oh, that whole, that was just so upsetting. (laughs) I mean, you don't know for sure because they're not telling you. So you're left to draw conclusions Mm -hmm. that may or may not be accurate. And then Amazon gets upset if you say something bad about it. It's very Orwellian. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Concerned. Where I'm not not wild about that. I remember I I was trying to teach um, dystopia and one of the students was like, we're living in it. Mm -hmm. Like, this is not creative. (laughs) I'll just pull a page out of my journal we're done <laughs> like, like i'm so sorry <laughs> and yet at the same time we've raised an entire generation maybe two of kids on dystopian novels so they have been sitting here reading about fighting the systems that don't work and then mm-hmm. we wonder why they want to take on the systems that don't work uh-huh yeah that's real interesting there's this what i didn't realize until I read the Zen, I think it's called Art and the Zen of Writing by Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't realize that educators used to say that sci-fi and fantasy was off limits and was not educational. Um, I didn't realize that that was a thing because I grew up on Star Trek. <laughs> so um I loved I loved Star Trek, C.S. Lewis, and like all the things. Um, I wanted to live in Narnia. So I didn't realize that that was an issue. And um, my husband, who acts very much like my grandpa sometimes, love you anyway, um, actually said something about like, well, you need to give him science books and history books and not all this fantasy or whatever you call it and i'm like he loves fantasy he writes fantasy he watches fantasy he's gonna read fantasy like the kid is 
a book hound. He is a bibliophile. And if it's Percy Jackson and Harry Potter that got him to be a bibliophile, I don't care. He's reading. He's reading. Same with um, my little guy. He's a reluctant reader because COVID struck in kindergarten. So he's behind. And yet it was a Miles Morales um, graphic novel that got him to open a book on his own. And he is reading that thing. Um, so I don't care. It is a superhero. I mm-hmm. I don't care. Like, that's what he needs to read. He doesn't have to read, like, uh, War and Peace or, you know. or Right. You know, my mother will talk about how she went out and bought every choose your own adventure book when we were kids because they were yeah. the only thing my brother wanted to read. And she didn't care. She's like, fine, you know, 50 of them. Great. Here you go. Yep, I, I love those. I love, love, love those. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, I remember an English teacher who really didn't like science fiction because and he didn't even let us do much creative writing. And I think his his reasoning for both was the same, that that it would just be an excuse for us to break the rules. <laughs> and yet, rules? I know, right? But on the first day of class, we walked in and there was a book on every desk and you picked your seat by which book was there or you just decided you didn't care, you know, one way or another. I picked the seat with Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. Yes. So I don't know how that got through, <laughs> but I absolutely loved that book. And, you know, I was like, I'm not sitting over there with Ernest Hemingway. Uh-uh. I had to deal with that for the summer reading. So that was bad enough. I'm, I'm Martian Chronicles. Here we go. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I love Ray Bradbury. I really do. He's great. And he was obsessed with, reading he went to the mm-hmm. library every single day and um the the way he he reminds me of my son <laughs> he really does just like it was toys and books that's it <laughs> and they're everywhere he's surrounded by them yeah well he's got a great quote that's something about you have to stay drunk on on writing so that you can avoid the reality around you something like that well, that's that's the truth, and yeah. I yeah, uh, shoot, that's why the younger me was at Star Trek conventions because because um, reality is boring. You don't fit in if you're an artist. You don't fit in um, to what this capitalism is saying. What you're supposed to be like, even my my mom's a good capitalist and. <laughs> She was a banker, a vice president of a bank, actually. And it seemed like if I created something, she would start thinking of a marketing plan. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I don't necessarily have to be famous. I just, I really just have to make a living doing the thing mm-hmm. that I love. And, um, that, and that's happiness for me. That makes right. me feel alive every day. Um, she doesn't necessarily get that. But I love her for, like, she pushes me and makes me think bigger sometimes. And that's awesome. Um, but it is funny that how how she as a left-brainer approaches poetry. And <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, and I grew up with parents who didn't understand science fiction and still don't. <laughs> so, you know, I would be watching Star Trek or Doctor Who or whatever. And, and it would be, what are you watching? That's my <laughs> husband. It's my husband. And I gave up trying to explain it, though I think it's really fascinating that, like, my whole outlook on life, my value system and everything was shaped by all of that that was basically trying to outline consciously or unconsciously, you know, how to be in the world. Yeah. You know, and how to build a better world and to stand up for the things that are worth standing up for and fight the things that are evil or just casually not good for for things, you know. And I I can't be upset about that. Yeah, that's that's what it is. Like and now there's this whole afrofuturism movement and uh, I am I'm obsessed with Octavia Butler, and um, it shows like the we can create a future that is that has all kinds of people in it, mm-hmm. and 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 there's a, a movement also in the Native American community, um, and just like a future where we're here. <laughs> and we're here and we're heroes and we're doing things. Um, if I might recommend a book, my my son uh made me read uh there's the char- main character is Amari, Amari, A-M-A-R-I. And um it's Amari and the whatever, but <laughs> but it was just so awesome. It was so, so, so good because it starts in reality where there is a black girl in a white school. So going through the same issues I went through and um, with um, police brutality around and poverty around. I mean, it's really in that reality. And then all of a sudden someone comes to her door and it is complete fantasy like oh by the way you've been living all this time unable to see all the fantasy characters that live everywhere and so now sweet now you can see them you can see the fairies and the dragons and the magicians and the witches and you can see them all they're all here (laughs) and it's it's really a great book and i saw there's a sequel now and that's ya but i think um i loved it so, yeah, there's nothing wrong with reading care. YA books. There are people who get all fussy about that too. You know, adults shouldn't read YA. Why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> if it's a well-written book, I'll read it. And, and who are you to tell me what I should and shouldn't write or exactly. read or both? <laughs> yeah, both. Because some are saying that I've also heard the argument that YA books are too adult, but. Mm-hmm. I think people don't really want to deal with some of the issues that teenagers are actually dealing with and going through. I think they don't even want to admit that teenagers are dealing with them and going through them. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's just unrealistic. It's not, it is not to come full circle. It is not all sunshine and rainbows folks. Exactly. (laughs) And that is the message today. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why kids like dystopian books so much. Yeah, that's true. 
you know, it shows them they can fight back against the stuff that's not right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, yeah. Well, thank you for coming back and having this conversation. I have really enjoyed it and I hope that people get a lot out of it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. That's this week's episode. Thanks so much to my guest, Maria James Chow, and to you. Please leave a review for this episode. There's a link in your podcast app. And in it, tell us about a time when art was political for you. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thanks so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com. And there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.